Thank you for listening to audio content from South Cities Church in Lakeville, Minnesota. For more information or resources, visit us online at southcities.church. So we're going to be hanging out with these seven churches for the next seven weeks. And I just want to repeat uh, one of the phrases that David just got done reading. And here's what it says. It says, he who has an ear, let him hear uh, what the Spirit says to the churches. So each of these letters is written to a specific church at a specific time in history. We'll hear of specific areas of faithfulness and foolishness with encouragements and exhortations to match those areas of faithfulness and foolishness, but there's a call to have ears that hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, even though it's written to a specific church. And with that clue, there's another clue about the number of churches chosen, seven, that signals a kind of universal message for the endurance and faithfulness of the churches of all time in all places. And what you'll notice is that in the rest of the letter, it's Jesus talking. But at the end of every letter to every church, it says, listen what the Spirit says to the churches. And so here is further evidence that the triune God of chapter 1, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all at work in these letters to encourage, exhort, and empower these churches in their temptation to weariness and worry and wickedness. So here is a word from the triune God to the blood-bought family of God in that moment in history, but for us. A word from the triune God of the universe, the creator of all things, the ancient of days, the one who holds all things together to us with a message that transcends all time, and he's calling us to heed, (laughs) to hear and to heed these exhortations. We should want to, in other words, imitate the churches where there's an encouragement, like all-in imitation, where Jesus says, I like that about this church. We should say, we want to be like that. And where Jesus says, this has to go or I'll remove your lampstand, we should say, that has to go from South City's church. And it's amazing. I think we'll see how relevant the word of God is centuries later. I don't think I'll have to work hard to make connections. We'll see what it would have meant to them and we'll be able to quickly see how it will translate to us. But what I want to do before we dive into these seven weeks, this honestly feels uh, dangerous and weighty to me. (laughs) When, When the Bible says to he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Hear it, heed it, listen to it. I just want to take a moment before we dive into the text here and just give you a minute and have us all ask the Lord, Lord, help us hear and help us heed. Let's take a moment and do that and then we'll dive in.
So Lord, help us hear you. Help us heed what you have to say. Lord, I pray that at the end of these seven weeks, looking at these seven churches, you would do a work of purifying at South City's church, a work of helping us more deeply enjoy you, love you, trust you, treasure you, and run away from anything that would take away from our first love. So do that in each individual. Do that in us as a church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, point number one here is his present and promised presence. So each letter we'll read will start with a description of Christ himself, and then each letter will end with some particular promise. And normally the, the description of Christ and the promises are, are tailored specifically for that church as we look at how is Christ depicted to this church, all of it taken from chapter one in the description we had last week, and, and how is the, the promise tailored to this church. We learn a lot about the heart of that church. How were they seeing Jesus, thinking about Jesus, what needed to be corrected or reminded for them. And so we get insight into the state of the church as we look at the description and the promise. Let's do that together for Ephesus. Verse one, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So notice the presence of Jesus present now. Jesus is described here as holding the seven stars in his hand, representing, as we saw last week, the seven angels of the seven churches that represent that the church is heavenly and spiritual, not merely earthly, that, that God is for them, that he sees them, that he's with them. In other words, this is Jesus saying, I've got you. These angels are my heavenly ambassadors and represent that I'll protect you and I'll hold you in my right hand. It's my hand of strength. That's how the right hand is pictured throughout the whole Old Testament. And I'm holding on to you. In fact, I'm among you. I'm not just holding on to you, some far off deity that's kind of un. Uh, unconvinced that you're important enough to be with. Instead, here I am holding on to you and I'm with you. I'm a very present help in your time of need. I walk among the seven golden lampstands which represent the seven churches. I'm with you. And his nearness is a beautiful thing. <laughs> but it also means he knows exactly what's going on in these churches. Right? Jesus, Jesus is here now. <laughs> He's in this room now, and, and that's a, a beautiful thing, that our king wants to be with us, but it also means he knows every single thing going on in this room. He knows every single thing going on in every heart in this room. No one is hidden from him. Those secret sins, they're not hidden. Those pains, they're not hidden. Those moanings and groanings, they're not hidden. He draws near to protect and to correct it's the kind of God that he is. So, so here he is and he's near. And I think that Jesus is saying that to Ephesus. We'll see it later because he's going, I'm still with you. Do you love me? Am I your first treasure? Do you love most in the world that I'm with you, that I hold you, that I'm for you? Is that what you love most, Ephesus? And oh, by the way, do you remember that I see you? I see past 
the really shiny veneer into your heart. So this dual reminder of his present presence. Kids, when your parents are close to you, Maybe at night when it's scarier, there's a thunderstorm or something. It's nice. It feels good that your parents want to be with you and close to you and protect you. But sometimes when your parents are close to you, it means that they hear you fighting with your brother or sister. Or they see or hear you doing something that you shouldn't be. And they have to talk to you. That's kind of the idea here. God is the perfect parent. He's near to protect and he's near to correct. And the idea here is that Jesus is intimately involved with his churches. Just trying to wrap my mind this week again around he's here with us. He's here with us. He cares about us. He loves us. He's for us. And he sees it all. Like, isn't it easy to go through the week forgetting that Jesus is here? He's right here with me. He's here with me all the time. He's, he's at every Wednesday connection. He's in every community group. He's at every Bible study. He's in every hallway where there's gossip. He's, he's everywhere seeing all the things at all the times for us to protect us and correct us. He loves them. He's near to them. Remember the picture in chapter one. He's all wise. He's sovereign. He's sturdy. Eyes seeing all. A mighty warrior whose word goes to build up and bring life to those who hear and heed it, but to tear down and punish those who ignore it. And so the presence of Jesus is present. And for those who love Jesus and remember that they love Jesus and that he's the best thing in the world, this is great news. This is the best news. He's near. Our Savior's near. The one who loves me has freed me by his blood and promises to be with me to the end is near and with us. And so whether he is encouraging us or exhorting us, we love it. His nearness is our joy. When it's an encouragement, remember, he doesn't break a bruised reed. He's a very present help in our time of need. He's with us to the end of the age. And when he's conforming us and helping us put to death the deeds of the body by the spirit, we go, thank you, I need it. Correct me, help me, conform me to the image of Christ. And the presence of Jesus is also not just pointed out to them as something happening now, but it's the promise forever for those who conquer. Like we said before, conquering in Revelation is not the prosperity gospel where you're promised a bunch of money, cars, comfort, luxury. Jesus is the example of comforting and conquering in Revelation, and he conquered through what? Death. Conquered through death and resurrection. And that threefold chord, remember from last week, of tribulation, kingdom, and endurance is the reality of conquering, enduring the tribulation for the sake of the kingdom. And that's what's promised here in verse 7. More of his presence to the one who conquers. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That is only good news and a good promise if you think Jesus is the best thing. Right? That's the only way it makes sense. You know what your promise is if you endure church? Listen, it's going to be rough here. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be tribulation. It's going to get hard. The world's not going to understand you. It's going to be broken. There's going to be suffering. But you know what the good news is? You get me forever. Isn't that enough? Right? That's only a good promise if you believe it now. (laughs) Jesus is enough now that he's what you want most now. 
that the one who freed you from your sins by his blood is for you, not against you, is the best news in the world now. Remember Genesis that we walked through last year. God's people in God's place to enjoy God's promise, the storyline of history, and here it is again. If you endure with Jesus through trials for the sake of the kingdom, you get to eat from the tree of life in the presence of God forever. This beckons us back to the garden in Genesis 1 and 2 when humanity was happy in the presence of God and happy with each other. Perfect fellowship with God, perfect fellowship with each other. Shalom happening, the rhythm of life exactly how it should be before sin entered into the world and broke it all. Then what was there? There was a tree of life. And here it is again, and it's the ultimate reward. You get to eat of it, signifying eternal life and live in the paradise of God to enjoy him forever and ever. In other words, to this Ephesian church, the word is, if you're wondering in the midst of temptation and trial, if it's worth it, remember this promise, you get me forever. When you wonder if it would be easier to give in, remember this promise, you get me forever. When you wonder if you'll make it, remember Jesus is with you and promises his presence now and forever to those who really, though imperfectly, endure an Ephesian church. If you think your doctrine is enough and what you love most is being right, remember the promise of heaven is not a place where you get to tell everyone they're wrong. It's a place where you get me forever. Right? This is a promise and meant to set them up for the rebuke that they're receiving. So here Ephesus in South City's church is reminded Jesus is near. He sees all. He's bought you. He walks among you. And there's eternity of joy coming for those who will stay near to him and keep him as their first love. Point number two. Their encouragement, which I just said flourishing faithfulness, right? Ephesus was a big city, kind of a hub of big commerce and travel. It was commerce that was closely linked to reliance on this pluralistic system of religion that sought the gods for prosperity. In other words, big place of commerce, lots of temples, lots of places of worship. A lot of people thought the commerce depended on, right, worship to these pluralistic gods. God for this, God for that, God for this, God for that. Worship them and everything is going to go okay. That was kind of the, the in and out of the city. And it was a big one. And therefore, there were all sorts of false gods, sexual immorality mixed in with temple worship to those gods, and just rampant indulgence of all sorts. So here's how he commends this church. And we should hear this commendation and want to be like this church. Here's what he says in verses 2 and 3 and verse 6. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So here is the commendation. You are intolerant and hateful of the right things, <laughs> intolerant 
of these evil things and hateful towards the things that I hate. Right? He's not just saying you should hate him. Jesus says, I hate them. And he says, you're joining me in what I don't tolerate and what I hate. So remember the call of revelation, endurance through tribulation for the sake of the kingdom. And here in a culture filled with temptation and false teaching and immorality, the Ephesians are really doing well in some ways. How? They're working hard and patiently enduring in order to avoid bad doctrine and bad deeds. I think verse 6 is a continuation of this theme. They hate the works of the Nicolaitans. What exactly is all this talking about? Well, in the early church, there was all sorts of false teaching going on. In 2 Corinthians 11, for example, Paul describes a group of false teachers taking advantage of the church. And he says, they're false apostles. What we see here. And even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And so this Ephesian church had an ability to know Jesus, to love Jesus and say, that's not Jesus. That's not true. We don't want anything to do with that. And as regard to the Nicolaitans in Revelation 2, verses 14 to 15, in the next church we're going to talk about here, he says, I have a few things against you to this, this other church. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So what in the world does Balaam have to do with Ephesus? Right, what's going on here? Well, listen to these words. So most of you know Balaam, right, as the guy who prophet goes to and says, prophesy a curse against Israel. And he keeps going, I, I can't. God just showed me blessing. And then you read the story, you go, this guy isn't really a stand-up guy, but he seems kind of afraid enough of God not to do something stupid. And so most of the time we go, what in the world is that talking about? But here's what it says about Balaam in Numbers 31, 16. It says, behold, these, these people of Israel, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor, so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. So what's going on here in that incident is that there was, uh, in that incident, Israel was commended and told, go ahead and worship Baal of Peor, go ahead and take these women as your wives, go ahead and commit sexual idolatry, right, with them, mix sexuality and worship just like what's happening in Ephesus, and it's going to be okay. And so the Nicolaitans were a religious cult claiming a similar thing, claiming the name of Jesus, but associated with the teaching of Balaam who caused Israel to mix false worship of Baal with sexual immorality. And so as we put all this together, here's how I take the commendation to, Ephesians, to the Ephesians overall. He's saying this. He's saying you're in a big city with lots of religion and very little truth, with lots of temptation, especially sexual morality, and mixing, in the, mixing that in with falsehood, and then lots of pressure to conform or be persecuted as these temples are kind of a, an extension of the arms of the empire. And yet, Ephesian church, you've endured. You haven't given in. You've tested the false teaching you found it to be false. You haven't let them in your church to trick you like Israel let Balaam in to trick them and lead them away from you. You've spotted them and you've abstained from these wicked things. 
In other words, I think the Ephesian church had taken Paul's exhortation to them in Acts 20, 28 to 30 seriously. Here's what Paul said to the, the elders right before he left. He said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples after them. In other words, what has repeated itself over and over and over again in history is some cycle of false teaching leading to, to false behavior or false behavior in a culture leading to a softening of the teaching that then leads to embracing that teaching. And in our day, just like in our day, that false teaching, that bad doctrine was likely leading certain groups of people that associated with the name of Christ to false teaching that confirmed, affirmed, and celebrated all sorts of sinful practice in the midst of a culture where it was considered normal to practice it. This is just normal everyday life. Why are you Christians being so uptight? Right? Why, why so exclusive? Why, why not just give in a little bit? We have a lot more fun than you. You won't come to our parties at the temple. You won't do any of the fun things that bring us pleasure at the temple. You're just uptight. Just loosen up a little bit, church. And not only that, but if you don't, persecution might be coming. Because <laughs> you're basically thumbing your nose to the emperor here, to the empire. So how much easier would it have been to conform? I mean, we feel it. <laughs> we feel it. I think we feel it some ways, right? Don't you feel the, the out of place not quite in line with culture reality of saying that the things the world affirms as good are actually evil in God's sight? You feel that at your workplace? In some of your trainings, in some of the spaces you find yourselves, at some of your family gatherings? Like, gosh, you're the uptight, weird, frustrating Christian that no one really wants to talk. Right? Saying that not only are those things bad, but churches that affirm them are false churches. That judgmental. Right, so judgmental, so ugly. Or even just saying that purity and obedience matters. Or even just saying that getting doctrine right is serious. Right, you can feel the, the eye rolls in some circles, right? Don't, don't be so hateful. Don't be so serious. Why don't you actually go do some good things, not just get your doctrine right? That's outdated. I mean, we're so much more enlightened now. And especially in a culture where people's sexuality is felt and lived as if it was their deepest identity, this kind of holding to the truth will be felt not just as a rejection of an idea, but as a rejection of people. That's hard. <laughs> That's hard. Maybe you've even thought that yourself, right? Doctrine is important, but it's, we value it a little bit too much around here. And that's just not what Jesus would say. It's not what he would say. Jesus isn't like, yeah, you got your doctrine right, but you don't love people, and it's because of your bad doctrine, right? Or it's because of your good doctrine. He'd say, good job. 
stayed faithful, you fought hard, you toiled. I'm commending you for not partaking, for abstaining from those things, for, for ch- checking out the false teachers. Right? They're commended for their faithfulness and staying close to true doctrine and therefore true deeds, despite likely persecution and alienation for it. They didn't participate in false doctrine. They could spot the false teaching. They were vigilant against the false deeds that came along with it. And Jesus says, well done. He doesn't say, you're a little much with how much you care about doctrine. Chill out a little bit. He says, well done. We should want this same kind of encouragement. So many people look at the church of Ephesus and they just go right to, they don't love enough, so it must be the doctrine's fault. They forget that Jesus commends them for their good doctrine. To be a place that knows Jesus is near, right? If you're the Ephesian church and you're like, Jesus is near. <laughs> there he is, man. His eyes are on fire. His hair is white as wool, man. There's a, a sword of his word coming out of his mouth. He's walking among us. Shouldn't everything in you go, we better know him. <laughs> man, we better get him right. Man, he is, he is good, but he's not safe. We better get him right. We better take seriously all that he says. Man, that is the Lord of the universe, the king of kings. Man, he owns the church. We better get him right. And Jesus says, you did that. You believe that my truth, who I am, is worth knowing and doing and proclaiming despite alienation and persecution because you're looking ahead to eternity with me in paradise where we will be his people in his place to enjoy his presence. Practical takeaways for us. Man, I hope we're people that knows our Bibles. <laughs> if you're brand new and you're like, I don't really know my Bible, I don't know how to read my Bible, that's okay. Because <laughs> we were all there. We, none of us knew how to read our Bibles, right? When, when Jesus came and first saved us. So just ask for some help. We would love to help you learn how to read your Bible, how to go to some of the easier places to show you who Jesus is. But we should be a place that loves our Bibles, that hops in a Bible study, that reads it on our own, that asks good questions. You should be a people that holds the elders here accountable for faithfulness in what we teach and preach. Be good Bereans who search the scriptures to know what's true and then lives the scriptures. Kids, you should memorize those verses like you do in your classes and listen at home and in Sunday school. Never let anyone tell you Bible reading and memorization is legalism. It only is if you're doing it to earn something from Jesus. But Bible memorization and reading the word of God is the pathway to true joy and truth and hope and what's good and beautiful and right because that's where we see Jesus. So yeah, if you're doing it to earn something, we're gonna see that warning in just a second here. Get help. Ask for help for your heart. Don't ask for help to stop reading the Bible. Right? Or stop memorizing verse. Ask help for your, for your heart. Here be the prayer for us, right? Lord, help us here at South Cities. Love the nearness of Jesus now and promise to us in the future so much that we would want to toil and patiently endure to spot false doctrine and false deeds. Lord, help us not tolerate what you don't tolerate and let us hate the works that you hate. And Lord, help us here at Cell Cities to live in the truth because we love you and nearness to you forever is worth speaking and living the truth even if persecution comes in this life. We want this commendation when Jesus returns. We want it now. Last point here, their exhortation, languishing love. One of my favorite pastors to read is Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he has this quote from the time he lives in. He says something like, I spend half my time 
trying to convince people that doctrine is important. And the other half of my time trying to convince them that it's not enough. Right? So I spend half my time trying to convince people that doctrine is important. And the other half of my time trying to convince people it's, it's not enough. In other words, his, his point and my point and the point of this little letter to the Ephesians, I think, is if you see Jesus and know Jesus as true and love being with the true Jesus, how can you not love him and other people? How can you not? How can it not fuel your affections rather than deaden your affections? So despite that worthy commendation that we want to emulate, not all was well at Ephesus. And let's be really clear in these letters, it wasn't just a little bit off. Jesus says, if you don't repent, I'll end your church. That's a big deal. That's why I said this is a dangerous letter. (laughs) You don't repent from your lack of love. I'll end your church. I'll remove your lampstand. The image of the lampstand is meant to show that the church is empowered by the spirit burning in the lampstand from Zechariah 4 and shining with the truth and love of Christ wherever the Lord has placed it in a dark world. So to be removed would be God saying, you're not doing that anymore. It's better I remove you than leave you here doing whatever you're doing calling church. But notice, notice the patience of Jesus. Right? He doesn't just remove them. He's going to exhort them and call them to repent. So this morning, as we see him, right, sword coming out of his mouth to, de- to divide to the very bone and marrow of our souls. As we see him coming to exhort and encourage, he's not scary if we just repent. And that's the good news here. So here's what he says in verses 4 to 5. I have this against you. It is not good when Jesus has something against you. It's not a good thing, right? I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember from where you have fallen, repent. Do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So despite their theological precision, their purity and abstaining from the false teaching and false deeds of immorality around them, Ephesus needed to repent. They had abandoned their first love and abandoned the first works that went along with those. So I started thinking this week, what do we know about Ephesus? Like where do we get some pictures of what they were like early on before this letter? Well, we get Ephesians 2.15. It says they were known, or 1.15, that says they were known for their faith in Jesus and their love for all the saints. So here was a place that was known for like, man, they just trust Jesus with everything in them and they love each other. Right? We know that from early on. We know from Acts 19 that they, the church in Ephesus, as the Holy Spirit was coming with the gospel, right, they're, they're confessing their sins and bringing their evil cultish practices to be burned in the city square as a testimony to Jesus. That's pretty radical. Right? Those are the works we can see in the Bible that they had at first. Like They trust him. They love each other. They repent and they, they lay down their sins at the foot of the cross in public, not embarrassed of it. Like they're like, hey, here I am. I'm a sinner. <laughs> Man, here's all the messed up stuff I was a part of. Here's all the, the brokenness that was in me. And I'm, I'm laying it down at the feet of Jesus. And so when you 
read commentaries, there's different ideas like what did they lose? What love is he talking about? I just, I don't know a way to separate like their, their burning love for him and their love for each other. I just think that they go together all the time in the Bible, but here too, because when we look at the, the early church in Ephesus, I think the picture we get is like this humble, all in for Jesus, trusting him, repentant, loving one another culture, right? You just get the sense of they're, they're bringing their stuff to the public square and saying, man, here's my brokenness. I need help. You just get the sense of like, we love Jesus. Like he's our new king. He's, he's bought us with his blood. He's freed us from our sins. We're going to be with him forever. This is how we make our money. It's sinful to so take it, Jesus. And, and you, brother or sister, that's how you make your money too. Give it away. Give it away. Let's go after Jesus together in this humility and repentance and brokenness and all from a burning love for Jesus Christ. Man, I want that. Don't you want that? Don't you want that here? So I think what had happened, if that's what they were like at first, I think this was a church that had grown to know what they were against, faithfully know what they were against, but had forgotten who they loved. So instead of truth and love in Jesus motivating them to love each other and the world around them, motivating them to repent and lay down all their sinful brokenness at the foot of the cross, Instead of motivating them for more fellowship with Jesus for themselves and a desire for others to fellowship with him, they're simply good at abstaining. And they're getting it right. That's a real commendation. They're like, we're not supposed to do that. We're not supposed to do that. You're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Stay away, close the doors. Man, that's scary. That's so subtle. Instead of the, the doctrine and all that they're getting right, fueling who they know Jesus to be and saying, I want more of him. And right, if you see more of Jesus, what's going to happen? More repentance, the more you know him. More humility, more desire to go to your neighbor. Right, like don't let this be off in some corner all by yourself. You go, man, Ephesus, man, I know some people that don't witness to their neighbors. Like your neighbors, they need to know Jesus. Like, what would it do if you didn't come and said, you're wrong about that. Don't like the sign in your yard on that. You're wrong about that issue. Let me tell you why I'm right about this. You said, hey, here were my sins. I mean, here's how broken I was. I get it. We're all broken. You need Jesus. I needed Jesus. Man, there's a, a family I'm a part of, and all we try to do is just need Jesus together. I am way off of my notes. I have no idea where I am right now. I'm trying to... Get back. There I am. All right. I mean, Paul tells the Ephesians, what did he tell them? Speak the truth in love. Right? So they'd gotten really good at the truth part, but not the love part to each other or the world around them. Instead of shining the light of truth for the sake of love in the church, that their brothers and sisters would enjoy fellowship with Jesus more, they're probably doing this, right? Instead of like, hey, see Jesus, come along with Jesus with me. They're probably like, I got you. See your sin. Yep, you're, you're wrong on that issue. Got you. should feel bad about that one. Let me, instead of repenting myself, tell you what to repent of. Instead of looking at myself and seeing how good Jesus is to receive me in my repentance, let, let me tell you where you could kind of see what Jesus is telling you to do. You can see how it gets broken, right? We're really good at the truth. Perhaps they're really good at saying what they hated about the culture around them, 
but not willing to love their neighbors as themselves, forgetting that they too were stuck in sin and just a few decades before had been worshiping cultish practices until Jesus drew near and showed them the truth of the gospel that saved them. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit to have a church love what is true. Holy Spirit, come and do it here. Help us love what's true. And it takes a work of the Holy Spirit to have the truth operate in the way of love, to to build each other up and speak the truth in love. It takes a work of the Spirit to hate the sins of the world, but long for the world to know the truth of the love of Christ. Like, I don't know if you're like me, but I just find myself like wanting to drift one way or the other. I just do like, oh, I hate that and I hate that and I hate that and all of a sudden I'm going cold and bitter and angry or gosh, like they're, they're people too and you know, all of a sudden the sin's not as serious and the word of God by the spirit of God to say it's both. <laughs> there's, there's no good news of the gospel if sin's not real and you don't call it sin but there's no love for the outside world if you don't say I'm a sinner too and, and Jesus is here. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit to do any of these things with any consistent balance or excellence. It is easy to be a theologically precise, truth-speaking church and have it be without love to your brothers and sisters here. It is easy to yell loudly about what you're against in the world around you, but never engage the world around you out of love. Notice Jesus says, remember your works, repent, do them again. Kids, if you yell the truth at your brothers or sisters in anger, are your parents super happy? But we do it all the time. <laughs> do it all the time. We're never like, yes, yell at your brother. Good work. What you said was true. Do it again. Corner him. Get him again. But we do it all the time. Everyone knows what we're against. Do they know what we're for? Of course your parents aren't happy kids when you do that. <laughs> and we shouldn't be a loveless, yelling people in the world. We need to repent where we've loved the truth without loving Jesus and other people. We need to repent where we've loved to be right rather than loved being near Jesus. We need to repent where we've wanted to yell loudly at people rather than looking out for others' fellowship with Jesus, whether in the church or in the world. We need to repent where we've been all in for doctrine in classes and not all into simple acts of love for our church family. We need to repent where we've been adamant about yelling loudly about the world but not engaging lovingly in the world. We need to repent where we've seen people as issues to be one and not people made in the image of God to be loved and one with the gospel. So here I'm closing. South Cities, Jesus is near. He's right here right now. He's not playing games, and that's good news for us. He sees all. His nearness is for our good. He calls us to love the truth, to faithfully know, speak, and live the truth. We cannot compromise the truth. We should not make uh, compromise with sin. It's not loving. It's not good. It's not helpful. We should hold on to the truth in the midst of falsehood and look forward to eternity with him. And he calls us right now at South Cities to repent and operate from love again 
We love because he first loved us. And the more we know him, the more we see him, the more we repent, the more we love him and know him and see him and can't keep this love to ourselves, but say we must bring it to bear for our brothers and sisters and in our neighborhoods. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me pray. So Lord, thank you that you're here and that you're near and that you are who you are, that you are truth, that you are love. Lord, you know, you know where we're prone to wander in these things. You know where we're prone to leave you, prone to leave the God we love. And so Lord, we say now, here's our heart, Lord, take and seal it for our courts above. Lord, correct us comfort us, encourage us, exhort us. Lord, be near to us and just have your way among us. Lord, where we've been walking away from you, Lord, especially in (laughs) not loving you and loving others the way we ought, Lord, help, help us repent even now. Repentance is a beautiful word. (laughs) It just means realigning our hearts with what you say is right, confessing our sins and knowing that you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. So we do it now, Lord. We confess our sins, confess our lovelessness, we confess our haughtiness, we confess our pride, we confess our anger, we confess, confess our apathy, confess where we love being right more than love knowing you. Lord, we hear what you're saying to your church. Lord, work in us now what is pleasing in your sight. Thank you for your blood, which has already forgiven all these sins. Cast them as far as the east is from the west. We come to you now confessing them that we might be healed. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to come to communion now. If you're here and you want to stay in your seat or you're not able to make it up, you can just raise your hand. And we'll bring the elements to you. Uh, If you're here and you're not yet trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, we'd ask you to let this pass. This is a meal for the family of God who counts Jesus as Savior and Lord and King. If you're here and you're trusting in Jesus but there's some sin that you're not yet willing to lay at the foot of the cross, the Bible says we can't pretend to fellowship with our sin and fellowship with idols. And so... We just ask you to confess it and repent of it now and then come and fellowship with Jesus. But if you can't do that now, get help and and pass up on this meal today so you don't eat and drink judgment on yourself. If you're here and there's bitterness and anger, especially against another believer in this family, but it's other believers in general as well, this is a family meal meant to show our unity in the blood of Jesus in our love for Jesus and for one another. So if there's some bitterness or anger that you just can't let go of, again, I pray this would be the moment of repentance. You just let Jesus melt away that anger with his love. We love because he first loved us, but if not, uh, let this meal pass and, and talk to someone and get help. But if you're here and you, uh, you want to love more than you do, <laughs> you want to walk in truth more than you do, you just want to be near to Jesus. You love that he's near and you just want him to have his way in your life, but there's all sorts of brokenness and things to figure out. This is a meal of sanctifying grace. So why don't you bow your heads.
And I'm going to say the words of institution. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So talk to Jesus, lay it all down before him, then come when you're ready.